In this episode, I'm going to be discussing globalization and the impacts that it's had. Now, this is a really quite wide-ranging topic in the A-level exam, focusing in section one of the global politics content in paper three. So I'm going to focus first on explaining what globalization is. Secondly, I'm going to look at the implications of globalization on state sovereignty. And then I'm going to consider how globalization addresses and resolves key contemporary issues. And there are four of these, poverty, human rights, conflict, and the environment. So firstly, what is globalization? And it boils down to this complex web of interconnectedness, a sense that the world and its countries and states have become closer together, that they share the same problems and challenges, and that our lives are increasingly shaped by events that occur and decisions that are made at a great distance from us. Obviously, the current coronavirus pandemic makes us think of this in particular, that events in another country far away impact on states everywhere. This can also be seen in the global financial crisis of 2008, or the sense of a globalised war on terror after 2001 and the 9-11 attacks. So the common strand in globalisation is that geographical distance is of declining relevance, and that we live in an increasingly borderless world, with borders becoming far less significant. We might go further and link globalisation with liberalism, and its belief in a shared, interconnected world where states need to work together. And the liberal view would be that local, regional, national, international and global events are constantly interacting with each other. So within globalisation, there are three key areas that we need to focus on. Political, economic and cultural globalisation. So firstly, political globalisation. What we mean here are all of the global international institutions that have sprung up since the Second World War, such as international governmental organisations such as the UN, NATO, the European Union, the regional organisations. These are a feature of political globalisation because they've been set up to enable states to work together in an interconnected world. Similarly, international law. This is a feature of a politically globalised world where states have established an international law and rules-based order in order to bring control over issues that transcend national boundaries, such as international human rights. And we can link this to the idea of complex interdependence, the idea that states and their fortunes are inextricably linked, and that an anarchical system is transformed by interdependence. That is to say the liberal view that states try to form global political institutions because their common interests depend on it. A second type of globalisation is economic, Within this, we would include the Bretton Woods institutions, including the IMF, the World Bank, and the World Trade Organization. These were set up because states saw the need for international institutions to regulate the global economy. And going back to complex interdependence again, these economic global institutions were formed because states and their fortunes are inextricably linked. Also included within economic globalization are all the links with international trade, and these links will not always be between state actors but non-state actors such as multinational corporations trading with one another across borders. We also, in economic globalisation, have the issue of development and poverty reduction, and it's within this section that we need to think about all of our theories of development, such as dependency theory. Does economic globalisation keep wealthy countries wealthy and keep the poorest countries poor? What efforts can we go to at a global level to reduce poverty, such as the Millennium Development Goals? All of these are key aspects of economic globalisation. Finally, we have cultural globalisation, which sometimes is quite hard to pin down. 
but essentially it comes down to all the people-to-people -people links that we have as a result of a more interconnected world. Cultural globalization is about the spread of global brands through increased international trade. It's about an increasingly interconnected cultural identity connected through literature and film that nations share. So cultural globalization is strongly linked to global capitalism and it's been aided by and wouldn't have happened without technology and the spread of satellite, TV and the internet. Increasingly too, cultural globalization is about values and democracy that we share and perhaps even that cultural differences between nations are flattening out and are becoming more similar. Some argue that as a result of cultural globalization, there is a global monoculture now emerging where all countries look culturally similar to one another. So this is why I said at the beginning that these three forms of globalization all interact with one another, because we can see that cultural globalization is driven by political and economic globalization. There's also a strong link to soft power in cultural globalization, which Joseph Nye described as whose story wins. And in an interconnected world, states actively take steps to try to push their culture outwards and to spread its influence around the globe. It might be through their education system or the strength of their cultural industries, such as the film industry. So we've looked here at an overarching definition of globalization and then always making sure that we break it down into three key areas, political, economic and cultural, and to be really aware of the fact that all these three interact with and influence one another. So as we take this further, questions on globalization are likely to focus on the process itself. Does it exist? Is globalization happening? How deeply embedded is it? What drives it? And secondly, the impact. Is globalization a force for good or ill? And critically, this will focus on four key areas of poverty, conflict, human rights and the environment. So let's think about the process of globalization itself and think about the different viewpoints on it and whether it exists and how deeply embedded it is. Now first I think it's worth highlighting the different views between liberals and realists on globalization. For liberals, globalization is the great opportunity. It reflects the sense of potential in the world as they see it, of close cooperation, partnership, the potential for creating institutions above nation state level. They see it as an opportunity to create greater trust and understanding and as a means of persuading states that they no longer have an interest in being in conflict with them one another. And they believe that globalization creates the foundations for global governance as seen in political and economic global governance, key features in themselves of political and economic globalization. They see it as a useful check on state egoism and as something that will persuade states against power maximization and instead encourage them to share power and solve collective action problems and collective security dilemmas together. Liberals look at globalization and try and create regional organizations to bring regions even more deeply together, such as the European Union, or to act as a stepping stone to deeper international cooperation. Realists, on the other hand, are sceptical and worried about globalization. They fear specifically that globalization is going to challenge the supremacy of the nation state. They see in globalization a relentless march to global political institutions which accumulate more and more power and that these institutions limit the ability for nation-states to act in their own state interest. They feel that globalisation puts constraints on state action, and that pooling sovereignty in international organisations weakens the authority of the state. They look at the features of political globalisation, such as IGOs and international law, with deep scepticism. Notions such as universal human rights, or attempts to create powerful regional organisations, 
Globalization therefore represents a threat to realists because they believe that their state's own interests are morally superior to those of others. And they believe that global politics is a self-help system where entrusting your safety and survival to international bodies is a dangerous risk. And they feel that these institutions undermine states as the key actors in shaping the world system. One aspect of globalization that realists are more comfortable with is economic globalization, perhaps because unlike political globalization, which involves sacrifices of sovereignty, economic globalization through trade creates opportunities for states to maximize their economic power. As well as considering the views of realists and liberals, we need to also think about the different views there are on the extent to which globalization has transformed the world. And these fall into three categories, hyperglobalizers, globalization skeptics, and transformationalists. Hyperglobalizers are those who are most enthusiastic about globalization. And crucially, they feel that it's such a revolutionary shift as to eventually make the nation state obsolete. They feel there's a relentless progression of global governance towards, at some point, a form of world government itself. They see the nation state as becoming less and less relevant in global politics, being crowded out by other more important actors, such as multinational corporations. They believe that globalization has had such a profound effect as to make the nation state a powerless actor, and they see the growing influence of multinational corporations and the rise of influential non-state actors challenging the centrality of the state in international relations. At the other end of the spectrum are the globalization skeptics. They argue that the world has experienced globalization before and that it's nothing new and that it hasn't really challenged the authority of the state. They would also challenge the notion that globalization has created more common interests between nation states and would point to continued selfish behavior of nation states such as the collapse of the Doha round of the WTO negotiations, showing that developing countries are not prepared to accept that they should continue to open up their markets without the global north making reciprocal arrangements. They would point to the UK's Brexit process or the election of Donald Trump as examples of protectionism and of the potential for nation states to fight back against the forces of globalisation. Many of the Trump administration's actions such as withdrawing from the Paris Climate Change Agreement or withdrawing the United States from the Trans-Pacific Partnership are further examples that the nation-state retains decisive autonomy. In the middle ground are the transformationalists. They acknowledge that globalisation has had a deep impact on state sovereignty, but they don't question the ongoing importance of the nation-state as an important actor in global politics. They disagree that globalisation equals the end of the nation-state. They agree that globalization exists, but they argue that nation-states are key actors within this new environment. They argue that states can use, for example, political globalization in their own nation-states' interest. They argue that states can join political institutions and use them to their own advantage. So membership of regional bodies, such as ASEAN and the EU, and the influence of the World Bank and the IMF, have challenged state sovereignty, but states still retain sovereignty, and can use their sovereignty as a negotiating tool in these organisations. They would challenge the hyperglobalizers in their view that multinational corporations are now more powerful than the states, arguing that states retain the right to determine fiscal, trade and monetary policy, as illustrated by the bilateral trade deals President Trump favours. And ultimately, they're called transformationalists because they believe that globalisation has a transforming effect on nation-states and that states can be enhanced by globalisation. They would point to China's global influence being hugely increased 
by their exploitation of economic globalization, and they would see the rise of the internet as a mechanism by which states can maximize their power through cultural globalization. So now we'll look at the implications of globalization on state sovereignty. The gateway into this will be our three types of globalization, political, economic, and cultural. So firstly, political globalization. What impact does being a member of an IGO have on state sovereignty? The important thing to note here is that different IGOs have a different impact on state sovereignty, and they don't all impact on state sovereignty in the same way. It really depends on the powers and the institutions that different IGOs have. So the United Nations in its founding charter is really clear in Article 2 that the organisation is based on the principle of the sovereign equality of all of its members. Also in Article 2, it says that nothing contained in the charter will allow the United Nations to intervene in matters which are essentially within the domestic capabilities of any state. And we know that the United Nations doesn't have any supranational institutions. The only exception is made for matters of peace and security, as directed by the UN Security Council. So within the UN system, states have considerable power to choose what they sign up to and what they don't. So in terms of the UN's human rights agreements, we can see that states have huge scope to sign up to or not sign up to the covenants that protect economic and social rights and civil and political rights. The Security Council does have more impact on state sovereignty because the Security Council could authorise military action and intervention in another state. An example of this is the 2011 Resolution, resolution 1973, which authorised military action and intervention in Libya. From the perspective of the Libyan government at that time, this would have been an intrusion into their sovereignty. And this type of military action is only going to take place in the most serious of circumstances, and there's no guarantee that the UN Security Council will always agree on whether to intervene in another sovereign state. And we can note here the non-intervention in Syria since the conflict began in 2011, due to China and Russia vetoing any form of military action. And for the most powerful countries, those who are members of the UN Security Council, the veto provides a significant opportunity for states to protect their sovereignty and to vote against and to ultimately stop decisions that they think will be harmful to their national interest. So we can see that the most global of IGOs, the United Nations, doesn't really have a significant impact on state sovereignty, certainly nothing compared to a regional organisation with the deepest form of integration, the European Union. The approach of the United Nations is intergovernmentalism, the idea that decisions are taken together and no state is told what to do by the others. The European Union, though, is an example of political globalisation where an IGO has created significant powers for itself and does have the ability to tell states what to do. The most powerful example of this is the idea of European Union law, which is binding on states and the European Court of Justice enforces it and makes sure that states comply. We know from the Fact Tame case in the UK that this ended in a UK law being struck down because it was found to be incompatible with European Union law. This is a big impact on state sovereignty. And looking more widely at the EU, we see all of the other institutions and architecture that it has. A European Commission that can propose laws, a European Parliament, the idea that states can be outvoted in the Council of Ministers, something that has only increased as qualified majority voting has been extended into more and more areas of EU policy. So all of these arguments about the impact on state sovereignty of EU membership played hugely into the Brexit discussion and debate and referendum in the UK, with many arguing that the EU represented too much of an impact on sovereignty. So IGO membership is hugely varied in terms of the impact it has on state sovereignty. 
Leaving IGO membership aside, let's now look at international law. This is another part of political globalisation that can have an impact on state sovereignty. The key difference here between international law and domestic law is that states retain a huge amount of power to decide which international laws they sign up to. We've noted that the international covenants protecting human rights are signed up to inconsistently by states, some choosing not to sign them at all. And if a state hasn't signed a piece of international law, then it won't be covered by it, and that law will effectively be unenforceable over that state. This allows states a huge amount of freedom. For those states that have signed up to various pieces of international law, there are very few enforcement mechanisms above nation-state level. For example, there are no international courts to uphold the conventions and the covenants that states have signed up to. There is the International Criminal Court, but this is reserved for the most serious crimes against humanity, and we know that its conviction rate is very poor. Humanitarian intervention in another state is an option, and we should note here the introduction of the Responsibility to Protect Doctrine. This was introduced in 2002, and it in some ways changed the absolute nature of sovereignty with a shift to the idea of responsible sovereignty, where states would lose their sovereignty if they act irresponsibly. But this is only a doctrine, and we can see that its application is quite inconsistent, with humanitarian intervention rare and not always happening where it should do. Humanitarian intervention is certainly something that can't be guaranteed. So it's hard in general to say that international law has a huge impact on state sovereignty. In all of these areas of political globalisation, we need to remember that states ultimately can choose. They can choose which IGOs to join, they can choose which international law they sign. They can even choose to leave these agreements, such as the UK leaving the European Union or the Trump administration pulling out of the Paris Climate Accords. So political globalisation sees a varied impact on state sovereignty, but one, I would argue, where states really remain in control. So now we need to look at the impact of globalisation on four key challenges in global politics. These are reducing poverty, peace and conflict, human rights and the environment, and we'll start with reducing poverty. And in each of these areas, we'll consider how our three types of globalisation, political, economic and cultural, play their part. So let's firstly look at the evidence that globalisation has helped to reduce poverty. The overall picture, when measured across the world as a whole, is that poverty has been reduced during the period in which institutions of economic and political global governance have existed. According to the World Bank, the number of people living on less than $1.25 per day, which is the global measure of poverty, has reduced to 702 million in 2016 from 1.9 billion in 1980. And if we look at the impact of political globalisation in contributing to this reduction, the United Nations has played a key role. A key founding aim of the United Nations was to reduce poverty, conducted primarily through the UN Development Programme and ECOSOC. And the Millennium Development Goals, which began in 2000, have made significant progress in reducing poverty. The MDGs were the first collective effort to reduce global poverty, focused on several specific targets. And the institutions created by political globalisation were central to coordinating and harnessing international action. They provided a coordinated action plan for many states and IGOs to follow, and clear plans for developing states themselves to follow. The UN reports that most progress on reducing world poverty has been made since the MDGs were introduced in 2000, with extreme poverty reducing by half since 1990. Many of the MDGs have now been taken forward in the Sustainable Development Goals that will run now until 2030. 
So a target-based approach led by the UN has successfully mobilised, clarified and arguably shared responsibility for reducing world poverty among a wide group of actors, including states, other IGOs and NGOs. Of course, progress hasn't been uniform and sub-Saharan Africa in particular remains far behind every other region when the MDGs concluded in 2015. Rapid economic development in China, largely unconnected with the MDGs, but rather linked to Chinese domestic economic reforms, has been responsible for a large proportion of the overall reduction in global poverty. And UN Secretary-General Ban Ki-moon also acknowledged in 2015 that global inequality remains a serious challenge even if global poverty has been reduced. So global inequality, the gap between the richest and the poorest in the global economy, has risen dramatically during this period. And so too have levels of inequality within individual states in both the developed and the developing world. For example, China's poorest 25% owns just 1% of the country's total wealth. Another positive impact of globalisation has been the growth and spread of free trade, and this has increased opportunities for states to grow their economies. Our initial definition of globalisation was of an increased global interconnectedness, and this has clearly facilitated capital flows around the world, growth in manufacturing and developing states, creation of jobs and greater access to goods. States are clearly better able to trade with one another in a globalised, interconnected world, with good transportation and technology which connects people easily across borders. Higher growth rates in South America and Africa point to economies that are plugged into the world economy thanks to globalisation. In addition to this, barriers to trade have been reduced and the World Trade Organisation has played a key role in this. Now this is relevant because the World Trade Organisation is a product of a politically globalised world as one of the Bretton Woods institutions. The World Trade Organisation has 164 member countries and the member states account for 97% of world trade. So the World Trade Organization has expanded its members, and this has seen more states around the world able to benefit from free trade agreements. Alongside expanding its membership, the World Trade Organization has increased the number of goods on which tariffs are no longer applied. Its negotiating rounds may take many years to agree, but they've progressively expanded the range of goods to which tariffs no longer apply. However, some states are still excluded from the World Trade Organization, such as Iraq, Libya, Somalia and Sudan. And the latest round of negotiations, the Doha round, has been ongoing since 2001, the so-called development round. The talks are in gridlock due to disagreements over further reductions in agricultural subsidies, which developed states are defending in the face of a perceived threat from cheaper agricultural imports from developing states. So this perhaps demonstrates a weakness in the World Trade Organization and the spread of free trade. Political power in the WTO does tend to reside with Western powers, and they tend to gain the most from deals. The so-called Doha development round was effectively abandoned without agreement in 2015. This means that the WTO has now failed to agree a new comprehensive trade deal since 2001. We also need to consider the impact of globalisation on the North-South divide. There is evidence that the recent era of globalisation has eroded the North-South divide. Between 1950 and 2010, the South's share of global GDP rose from 27% to 47%. So this indicates that the South has been catching up during the era of globalisation. Many states in the global South have successfully industrialised. These include the so-called newly industrializing countries, particularly those in the Pacific Rim, such as Brazil, Malaysia and the Philippines. China, officially in the global South according to the Brandt Line, has seen a dramatic increase in its economic growth, 
and is on track to become the world's largest economy. Far from being a continuing member of the Global South, China has itself become an investor in states in the South, predominantly in sub-Saharan Africa, extracting natural resources to cater for its rapidly expanding industry and population. However, there are still inequalities between the North and the South. It still remains the case that multinational corporations based in the Global North can exploit states in the Global South for natural resources and cheap labour. Finally, economic globalisation and the idea that economies across the world are ever more interconnected does not always turn out well. The global financial crisis of 2008-2009 led to a global recession that was particularly badly felt in Africa and South America. An economic problem in one state spread rapidly across many, many states, and states in the global south arguably felt the effects of the downturn for longer than those in the global north. So the overall balance in terms of globalisation's impact on poverty is a difficult judgement, and it could be argued convincingly on both sides. However, the stark reductions in global poverty, the rapid expansion of free trade and reduction of trade barriers, the reduction in the north-south divide, and the positive impacts of political globalisation through efforts such as the MDGs in reducing poverty, point towards an overall positive impact on reducing poverty from globalisation. So now let's turn to the impact of globalisation on peace and conflict. First, the evidence that globalisation has had a positive impact on conflict and has contributed to reducing conflict. Now, globalisation has brought with it a pattern of decreasing interstate conflict. Now, the reasons for this are due to both political and economic globalisation. Greater trade, aligned economic interests, the formation of international governmental organisations such as NATO, the United Nations Security Council, the signing of an increasing range of treaties such as the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty have all combined to reduce conflict between states and to disincentivize states from fighting one another. If we look further at the formation of international governmental organisations, these have acted in various ways. In terms of the United Nations, the Security Council acts as a dispute resolution mechanism. It keeps the great powers locked in. They may not always agree with each other, and nor are they always able to pass resolutions, but in many cases they do take action that reduces conflict. They agree peacekeeping missions around the world from the UN peacekeeping operations. They've issued economic sanctions, for example, against Iran. And if we look at NATO, there is clear evidence that the Article 5 an attack on one is an attack on all principle, has acted as a significant deterrent. More recently, NATO's role has evolved to tackling global terrorism and tackling security problems further from its borders in Western Europe. This has included highly successful operations in the Indian Ocean against Somali pirates. All of this amounts to the creation of a rules-based world order, which has disincentivized states from fighting one another. A second key aspect of globalisation has been cultural globalisation and the sharing of values, especially democracy, that has spread around the world increasingly since the end of the Cold War. This led to Francis Fukuyama writing about the so-called end of history. It also links to the idea that democratic states are less likely to fight each other. These arguments all link to the idea of liberalism. We can link it too to our Kantian constraints on conflict. These Kantian constraints are free trade, membership of international organisations, and democracy. So what about the other side of the argument that globalisation has not had a positive impact on reducing conflict? Well the main argument here really is that although it's true that interstate conflict has decreased, that conflict within states has increased. 
And key evidence of this is the rise of extremism, which in itself can be linked to cultural globalisation, the idea that Islamist extremism within states has become increasingly prevalent. This has caused a problem within states, and here we would look at Syria, Iraq, Libya, Mali, Somalia. But we can also point as well to the impact of Islamist extremist organisations and their willing to attack other states, notably through the 9-11 attacks. We can also see through globalisation a more multipolar world, one in which the United States is a declining world power. This means that the United States is less able to police global conflict and keep our world secure. There is a more equal distribution of power, with more states such as Russia becoming more powerful and willing to involve themselves in conflicts such as Syria. And with greater multipolarity, the UN Security Council is frequently gridlocked and therefore unable to deal effectively with conflicts such as Syria in which it should take perhaps a more activist role. A more equal power distribution has perhaps also led to overreach and increasingly realist-driven intervention from major world powers such as the United States and Russia. And these interventions can often cause instability. We can point here to the interventions of the United States during the war and terror period in Iraq and Afghanistan, or to intervention by Russia in Ukraine in 2014 and in Syria from 2015. So once again we have a very difficult judgment call, but on balance the pattern of decreasing interstate conflict and the increasing rules-based world order points to political and economic globalisation driving a cultural globalisation that has made states far less likely to fight each other and more likely to be members of organisations or treaties that limit conflict. The difficulty has been that non-state actors have emerged and that non-state actors, crucially, are not part of these economic or political globalisation initiatives, that they have no incentive to respect them and are never going to be limited by them. Thirdly, let's consider the impact of globalisation on human rights. What evidence is there that globalisation has had a positive impact on human rights? Well, firstly, there's the political globalisation story of the gradual strengthening of international human rights law. Always remember the journey this has gone on, from the UN Universal Declaration through to covenants that put human rights into international law, binding international law, through to conventions which then made human rights law ever more specific, protecting specific vulnerable groups, such as women, children, and clarifying the rules on prevention of torture. Political globalisation has enabled these international human rights laws to spread and grow ever stronger. Most importantly, the United Nations, which has acted as a forum for the creation of the Declaration, the Covenants and the Conventions. We should remember that the first binding human rights law was the European Convention on Human Rights. This wasn't created by the European Union or the European Community, but by the Council of Europe long before the European Union was even thought of. So political globalisation has been a strong driver of increasingly strengthened international human rights law. Secondly, through globalisation, we've seen the spread of global institutions to prosecute and protect human rights. These include the European Court of Human Rights, the international criminal tribunals, which can be established under the resolution of the United Nations Security Council, and the International Criminal Court, which became operational with the Rome Statute in 2002. These institutions are important because they're able to prosecute, and they're also there to act as a deterrent. The International Criminal Court was founded in 2002 to deal with the most serious crimes against humanity. The European Court of Human Rights has been acting as a safeguard, enabling citizens to appeal against judgments on their human rights in their own country if they're dissatisfied with those judgments. Cultural globalisation has also played a role 
in creating internationally agreed norms and values, the spread of social media and interconnectedness has raised awareness of what our human rights should be. In times when there have been human rights abuses, people have been able to look at satellite TV and use social media to examine the gaps in their own human rights provision. Social media and an interconnected global audience has enabled NGOs to be able to identify human rights abuses and to campaign against them. This has all led to a gradual diminishing of the importance of borders, with states and their leaders increasingly accountable to a set of internationally agreed norms and values. One of the biggest drivers of the Arab uprisings in 2011 was the fact that citizens in North African and Middle Eastern countries were aware of the human rights enjoyed in Western countries and were also able to track the speed of the revolutions in neighbouring countries and had gained confidence from this and agitate for change in their own countries. So there is no doubt that political globalisation has created a framework of international human rights law and institutions. The question then is, well, how powerful are these institutions in practice? So on the other side of the argument, we can see that universal human rights are still inconsistent and that the barriers of state sovereignty prove a crucial obstacle. International human rights law certainly exists, but the extent to which states have signed these international human rights laws remains really inconsistent. The covenants and conventions have significant gaps among them of states that have not signed or ratified these agreements and are therefore not covered by them. So international human rights law is really only as strong as the number of states that have signed and agreed to actively promote and protect those rights in reality. Equally, the institutions of global human rights have their weaknesses too. It's not impossible for states to ignore findings of the European Court of Human Rights. The international criminal tribunals are very inconsistent and are completely dependent on the UN Security Council deciding to establish an ICT. And the International Criminal Court has serious weaknesses in the extent to which it's been able to convict. And if the ICC is unable to convict, then what kind of deterrent is it really in practice? Alongside this, we have the perhaps nuclear option, which would be humanitarian intervention. If a state really needs to be forced to comply with human rights norms, then other states may choose to intervene militarily. But how often does this happen? We know that enforcement by humanitarian intervention is really inconsistent. The failures of intervention in Rwanda point to this inconsistency and the extent to which realism still dominates states' motivations. Even when there are interventions, these can sometimes go wrong and failures can arise from the issue of feasibility, mandate and nation-building. For example, in Bosnia in the mid-1990s, UN peacekeepers were present in, in and around the massacre at Srebrenica but didn't have the right rules of engagement or weren't there in sufficient numbers to be able to intervene meaningfully and decisively. Furthermore, economic globalisation has given multinational corporations huge power and this can sometimes lead to workers' rights abuses, particularly where MNCs find themselves in powerful positions over poorer and much weaker states. So all of these are difficult judgment calls. But in respect of human rights, I would argue that globalisation has not had a significant impact. Yes, we've seen a rapid expansion in human rights law and institutions, but overwhelmingly in this area, state sovereignty remains a significant barrier. There is just too much inconsistency. Globalisation has done nothing to make this more consistent. Humanitarian interventions happen, sometimes they don't happen. International human rights law is signed, sometimes not signed. And institutions are sometimes obeyed and sometimes not obeyed. Perhaps it's too easy for states to enjoy the benefits of globalisation without necessarily adjusting their human rights regimes decisively. So finally, we need to consider the impact of globalisation on the environment. 
What evidence is there that globalisation has had a positive impact on the environment? Well, firstly, we have our political globalisation once again. And political globalisation has offered new forums and institutions that support negotiations. And these include the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change and the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. The UNFCCC has acted as a really important political globalisation institution in that it has locked countries into years of negotiations. It's offered states a mechanism to return to difficult challenges even when there's failure. If one conference doesn't succeed, then states can pick it up again at the next. We can see evidence within the UNFCCC of states learning from their previous failures and of adjusting at subsequent conferences. Secondly, with economic globalisation, increasing wealth and growth in powerful states such as India and China now means that they're more economically stable and are now able to make firm commitments. In the Paris Climate Accords, it was the developing states that have now reached a greater level of economic stability that made particularly ambitious commitments. There's been a gradual progression in what's been agreed at conferences. Firstly, an agreement on the need to protect the global commons, an agreement on the scientific evidence for environmental threats, then an agreement to provide a negotiating framework for states, and finally international summits to agree specific principles and actions to be taken. This has all been a positive onward journey. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has been successful in taking some of the politics out of climate change talks and negotiations, with regular assessments of the impact and extent of climate change, regular assessments of the causes and risks of climate change, which has guided the politicians in their negotiations. Finally, cultural globalisation has helped with sharing international campaigns. Increasingly, the media and NGOs can share campaigns, and campaigns can spread around the world globally. International figures such as David Attenborough can have global reach. Greta Thunberg has managed in a very short space of time to become an international advocate for climate change action across many, many states around the world. It's hard to imagine Thunberg being able to do this if we weren't living in a culturally globalised world in which communications are shared across so many states. Perhaps too there's been a global recognition of the collective dilemma presented by climate change that it provides a classic example of a situation which can only be resolved if states cooperate in order to lower carbon emissions and protect the environment. So what are the arguments against? Well firstly economic globalisation remains a significant barrier. States are aware that they are increasingly competing with each other economically and if they're to make sacrifices in order to save the environment, then they're likely to suffer economic consequences that may be negative and see them lose. The spread of free trade and industrialisation has hardly had a positive impact on emissions. States are competing for economic power and resources, and this extends to natural resources. A real estate will not want to slow its economic development by switching from easily exploited fossil fuels to more complicated and underdeveloped renewable energy. This highlights the tragedy of the commons, the challenge that in a system of global politics dominated by selfish national interests and competition for economic power, states will be motivated to use and even harm the global commons to advance their own interests, rather than work together to protect these shared resources and environments. And cultural globalisation has seen this sense of consumerism and individualism spread around the world. We can point here to the increased global reliance on plastic, as a driver of a real environmental problem. We can also see that political globalisation has struggled to deliver meaningful solutions to the challenges that the environment faces. Progress of international summits has been far too slow. States have been unwilling to take action sufficient. Legally binding targets imposed by an external body have still not materialised. The most successful recent summit, the Paris Agreement, 
still has significant weaknesses. The pledges that states have made and have been allowed to set themselves are insufficient in limiting global temperature rises to below 2 degrees Celsius, and too much trust is placed on states taking action without any means yet of punishing or holding them accountable if they don't keep their promises. And once again, we come back to state sovereignty, with the United States withdrawing entirely from the Paris Agreements and having the power to do so under the leadership of Donald Trump. So in general, the process of political globalisation offers few guarantees of sufficient progress and once again gives states the opportunity to wriggle out of commitments or water down commitments made by previous governments. So in this area, again, I would come down on the side that globalisation has had an insignificant or a negative impact on the environment in that the political globalisation process has been too slow and inconsistent. And the economic globalisation has actually seen states compete with each other with negative impacts on the environment. So this really was a mammoth podcast. It's a big topic, globalisation, in the Global Politics Unit. Um, so always remember that it comes down to three key aspects, political, economic and cultural. If you always think about globalisation in those three ways, you're always going to be really broad in the way that you discuss and analyse it. And overall, globalisation has had more of an impact, has made more of a positive difference in resolving poverty and reducing conflict than it has been able to have in reducing human rights abuses and preventing destruction of our environment. I think that brings us back to the ideas of the transformationalists who acknowledge that globalisation has had a deep impact on state sovereignty, but they don't agree that globalisation signals the decline of the state. The transformationalists argue that states still retain sovereignty and can use this as a negotiating tool. And I think this demonstrates why globalisation has had more of an impact in reducing poverty and reducing conflict. It's had more of an impact because states have wanted globalisation to have an impact reducing poverty and reducing conflict whereas I don't think that states have felt the same desire to utilize globalization to positively address human rights nor yet the environment thanks for listening <laughs>